So this is Srimad Bhagavatam uh, 4.2.21, a translation for Ford or by Srila Prabhupada. Huh, you have it on your phone. Do you have the verse there? It's interesting, it's the 21st century. <laughs> so, um, so uh, maybe since, uh, how many people have it on? Everybody has it on. Okay, I guess that's 421, no, 421. So, so <clears throat> translation is, uh, <clears throat> this body, literally this mortal thing, this body, Udisha, with reference to Bhagavati, to Shiva, Aprati, Druhi, who is not envious, Druhiati, bears envy, Agyat, less intelligent person, Pratadrishti, the vision of duality, Tattvata, from transcendental knowledge, vimukha, bereft, bhavet may become. So, Prabhupada's translation. Anyone who has accepted Daksha as the most important personality and neglected Lord Shiva because of envy is less intelligent and because of visualizing and duality will be bereft of transcendental knowledge. Prabhupada's purport. The first curse by Nandishwara was that anyone supporting Daksha was foolishly identifying himself with the body and therefore, because Daksha had no transcendental knowledge, supporting him would deprive one of transcendental knowledge. If you follow an ignorant person, you become ignorant. Uh, Nandishra said, so Daksha, Nandishra said, identified himself with the body like other materialistic persons and was trying to derive all kinds of facilities in relationship with the body. He had excessive attachment for the body and in relation to the body, with wife, children, home, and other such things which are different from the soul. Therefore, Nandishra's curse was that anyone who supported Daksha would be bereft of transcendental knowledge of the soul and thus also be deprived of knowledge of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Prabhupada Kija. Is there any water or is that extra? Back to basics. So let's look at this verse very closely. Let's look at the Sanskrit and, and see literally, very literally what Nandishra um, is saying here. So first thing, yaitan martyam udisha. So first of all, one who, yeah, this literally martya, mortal, or something which is going to die, it's called martya. It's obviously related to our English word mortal, and so on, martya. So with reference, Udisha, Dish means to point, like Dish means a direction, something you point out. And, and that's why also from the same root Dish, thank you, get turned to stuff. Just to give you a little insight into Sanskrit, it's a very interesting language. Dish means a direction, and therefore direction, it points you, right? So dish means to point, and here udisha, point out. And um, 
or pointing out or with reference to. And also from dish, you get the noun desha, which means a place. A like, for example, dish is direction, so a particular region, in other words, the place in that direction is a desha. And then upadesha means uh, instruction, in the sense of pointing something out, like bringing someone to a place or pointing something out as upadesha, as an upadesha amrita. So that's, that's all the same, the same word. So, um, so yaitan martimudisha, so with reference to, in other words, pointing to this thing which is going to die, which is taken here to be the body. Yaitan martimudisha. Bhagavatya prati druhi druhyat yagya pritam drishtis. So one who, uh, because of prithadrishti. Prithadrishti is a term which you find in the Bhagavatam, always pejoratively, it's always a negative term. Prithag means separate, separate, and, uh, or separately, and drishti, of course, is vision. Drishti is just another way of saying darshan or seeing. So literally, this can be translated as uh, separate, the vision of duality, Prabhupada calls it. In other words, uh, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Atmopam yena sarvatra, dopasyati arjuna, that a learned person, literally by comparison with oneself, upama, well, we'll go a little bit into the Sanskrit, right? Why not? It's a free country. So ma in Sanskrit means to measure. So we have, for example, in English, you have words like metric, like a measurement. And metric is just Sanskrit matra. It's the same word. And so when you measure something, like in the sense of proving, like what's the measure of something, that's called pramana or evidence, which is literally the measure of something. And so uh, upa means near. So upama is like putting two things near each other and measuring them. In other words, that's the Sanskrit word for comparison. Actually, upa means near and also often has a sense of not quite as much as, like less than. For example, an upa purana. An upa purana means like a junior purana, which is near a purana, but not quite a purana. Or um, uh, a younger brother is called upa, and then his older brother's name, like Indra's, kid brother in Lord Indra's younger brother is called Upa Indra, Junior Indra, Upendra, and so on. And um, actually we have the word Upa in English from Sanskrit. You will be pleased to know. We still have it in English. It went through the Greek and in Greek it was spelled H-Y-P-O. The Greeks did not pronounce the H at the beginning of the word, which we still have in English words like honor or hour like what, five hours till midnight. So the Greeks didn't pronounce the H, so, and they pronounced, so the H-Y would be pronounced upa in Greek, ancient Greek, which in English just becomes hypo, as in hypothermia, for example. Hypothermia means too little heat, not, a, not up to the standard of heat. So that's our English word hypo, a prefix hypo, the Sanskrit upa for all of you language fans. So anyway, so the word upama means a comparison, where you bring two things together and measure them. 
upama. And so from the word upama, you have opamya, which is based on comparison, based on measuring two things together. So Krishna uses the very interesting term in the Gita, atmopam, atma opamyena, by literally comparing other souls to yourself, empathy. By comparing other souls to yourself. Another way of saying this in English, which is also has a, a Sanskrit prefix, is sympathy. Pathy, of course, like pathetic, means like feeling. And sim, S-Y-M, is just Sanskrit sum, as in sankirtan. So sympathy is just, anyway, it just means that you feel together with someone else. So, so this atmopamyena, Krishna says, if you actually compare your soul or yourself to the soul of other people, you'll find we have a match. And that's why Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, uh, that's uh, samaksarveshu bhuteshu, I think it's 1854, something like that, madbhaktin labate param, madbhaktin labate param, that um, one was equal to all living beings, and that includes yourself. One who is equal to all living beings, samaksarveshu bhuteshu, madbhaktin, my devotional service or devotion to me, levate, one obtains, param, the highest. So without this universal empathy, we cannot achieve the highest bhakti. Just not possible. In fact, if Rupa Goswami says that we can achieve it just by external behaviors, like I get up real early, or I do this, or I even if I go out on the Sankirtan, I mean, it's all good, it's all very positive, it's all valuable. But if one thinks that just by, ex just by external behavior, just by external behavior alone, one can achieve the highest devotion, Rupa Goswami says, Shadbir Bhakti Vinashadi, that will actually destroy our devotion. That's why uh, it's not mechanical to save the world. We can't just go out there and just do what we do and think that mechanically, automatically, the world will be saved. There actually has to be bhakti. And according to Bhagavad Gita 1728, there has to be knowledge on the part of the people that we're dealing with eventually. I mean, you know, you can only go so far down the road when the other person has no idea what's going on. So Agyata Sukriti is a great thing, but it's limited. It's limited. As Krishna says in 1728, any religious activity. There are actually three religious. I'm going to get back to the verse. I'm just kind of, this is a long scenic route. So Krishna says that uh, anything which is sacrificed, offered in sacrifice, ashadhaya, without really believing in what you're doing, if you don't really put your heart in it, ashadhaya hutam, dattam, or charity giving something in charity, or tapas taptam, or performing austerity, or kritam or anything, any religious. Because if you look at chapter 18, this is the end of chapter 17. And so Krishna is identifying three divisions of religious activity or spiritual activity, which are sacrifice, which means you give, you offer, or, or you give upward to someone better, greater than you, a sacrifice. And then there's charity, which means you give downward to someone less fortunate. And then tapas means you just give up. 
So these are three kinds of giving, giving up, giving upward, giving downward. And these three activities, yagya, dana, tapas, as we find in chapter 18, in the beginning, are really the set of religious activities. So if you think about it, any religious activity, ultimately is offering upward, offering downward, or giving up. And even, for example, say knowledge. If you, if you study, that is called in Bhagavad Gita, jnana yagya, the offering of knowledge. In fact, Krishna says, shayan dravyamaya yagya, jnana yagya parantapa, better than the offering that consists of, literally that consists of just material things like a ghee lamp or even giving some money. Or, I mean, that's all good. Krishna's not saying don't do that. He's just saying there's something better than that, which is the sacrifice consisting of knowledge when you actually offer your consciousness in the simple sense of agreeing with Krishna. So for example, if Prabhupada says, as Krishna's pure representative, that our temples exist in order to preach to local people and, change, and so on, you actually agree with that and don't forget that Prabhupada said that. And I could say other things. I'm famous for saying other things. What's that? Well, first I better get back to the verse. Otherwise, this would be one of those famous Bhagavatam classes. He has a nice class, but he didn't talk about the verse. So, amazingly, I'm actually going to now show you that all this stuff is about the verse. So, the idea here is Pritha Drishti. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, it's only by universal empathy. It's only by seeing the equality of all living beings that you can achieve the really transcendental devotion. And so here, the opposite of that, the opposite of that universal empathy or that universal sympathy, uh, also expressed in the Gita, obviously by verses like Pandita, Samadarshana, and so on. The opposite of that is Pritha Drishti, that your Drishti, your vision is that things are separate. In other words, we're not really one. Obviously, we're all individuals, but we're not really one. This is also the, the, this same distinction between seeing that we're all equal. It doesn't matter. I mean, some people just go crazy. Like if, if someone is a different gender than them, then there's like this high wall of separation. You're a totally different type of living being and so on. I mean, obviously, there are rules of chastity. There are rules of proper behavior. We should be ladies and gentlemen. But to judge someone by their body type, either their gender, their race, or uh, other types of things is just, is just gross ignorance. And so we should be careful about heavily institutionalizing, you know, uh, emphasizing differences in body types. Obviously, as I said, there is culture. We follow principles. There is appropriate behavior between men and women, for example. But ultimately, to judge someone by their body type, that someone is, is, is just ignorance. You're assuming that that person has no idea about their soul. And also, um, also just to mention one thing, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, the only time Krishna uses the word right, as in you have a right, like human rights, there's one time in the Bhagavad Gita Krishna uses that word. It's when he says, I think it's 247, 259. Anyway, it's do something. You have a right to do your duty. In fact, that's your own karmanyeva, only to your duty. That's your right to do your duty. 
not the not right to the fruits and so on. But then Krishna says throughout the Gita that your duty is born of your nature. So if because of some fanatical idea, someone denies another person the right to serve Krishna according to their nature, according to their ability, there's actually violence against that person, which may be done in the name of chastity or the name of Vedic culture. For example, we find in the oldest Upanishads, oldest Vedic literature, that there were women who were gurus to kings. Some people think that would be evil to have a woman take the position of guru. But actually, it's right there in the Vedas. But Hare Krishna. So, Pritadrishti. Pritadrishti means seeing things separately. Also in Bhagavad Gita, I think it's 1830 or 30, 31 or something, Krishna talks about intelligence in the three modes of nature. Intelligence in the three modes of nature. And it's very interesting. No, I'm sorry. Whoops, back up. What's the, how do they say nowadays? Walk that back. <laughs> yeah, 1820 through 22. Krishna's talking about jnana in the three modes of nature. If you look at Bhagavad Gita, buddhi means roughly analytic intelligence. In other words, seeing the differences between things, what is to be done, what is not to be done. Jnana is used in the 18th chapter in the sense that we would use the term worldview, like how you put it all together. In Sanskrit, that's called vyasa and samasa. Vyasa means taking things apart, like analytically seeing different components and so on, differences. And jnana means how does it all fit together? What's the big picture? So in 1820 through 22, Krishna's giving the big picture in three modes of nature. And interestingly, the main difference between goodness and passion is that in passion, in, in, when your big picture is in the mode of passion, you see differences like gender, like race, like age, like species, like nationality, ethnicity, all that. And you think that is the, that is a fundamental reality. Like men and women are really different. And people of different races, people of uh, different ethnicities are really different. And that's it, they're just different. Krishna says that is, that is, Again, pratag, you use the word pratag, you see things separately, that's the mode of passion. That is a mundane way of seeing the world. And when you see, as Krishna says, that, um, this, that behind all these differences, actually I'll read the verse to you in Sanskrit, so you'll know I'm not just making this up. <laughs> yeah, as they say, you always have to be careful when someone quotes to you the chapter 19 of the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, Krishna says, 1820, a little rusty here. Know that your worldview, your big picture, or your knowledge, jnana, that's what he's talking about here, is in the mode of goodness. In other words, is pure or conducive to spiritual understanding when uh, you see or when a person sees one, one eternal or unperishing bhava. Bhava from the Sanskrit word bhu to be means state of being or it can mean existence, one existence, one state of being in all bhutas, in all living beings, one state of being in all living beings, and that that one reality, that one 
exists that one spiritual nature in all beings is avivaktam vivakteshu, undivided in the divided. Undivided in the divided. So obviously we are different people. Obviously there are different genders, different ages, races, ethnicities, and, uh, and, and ranks. For example, I'm a sannyasi, which means that I get, I get free lunch, whereas you may have to pay for your lunch. So, so that is avibhaktam vibhakteshu, undivided in the divided. Now, that's the way you should see things. Now let's look at the mode of passion. And as Krishna says later, mode of passion means your brain is working ayatava, inaccurately. When your brain is working inaccurately, that's the mode of passion. And when you get everything completely backwards, that's the mode of ignorance. So, in the mode of passion, twice you get the word pritta. The same word you get in this verse in the Bhagavatam today. It's the same word. And Krishna says, by differentness, literally by differentness, by separateness, by separateness, uh, one understands things. So, nanabhavan, one sees different existences, different states of beings. In other words, when you, when you see, let's say, men, women, or different species, different races, ethnicities, different things, you see there obviously are differences, there are obvious differences, and you think those differences, are re that's just the ultimate reality. That's just what it is. People are really different, period. So, uh, so that knowledge is the mode of passion. So obviously here, Daksha, now there's another problem. Daksha was a manager. He's, he's one of the prime, you know, primeval managers, patriot, nothing personal, because some managers are saintly persons like Vedasura. <laughs> But there is, there is a tendency for those who manage to be, let's say, people who are passionate are attracted to, or who have that passion, attracted to control other people. After all, Kshatriyas are in the mode of passion and Krishna says that they have Ishwara Bhava. They like to be the Lord. Ishwara Bhava, their nature is to be in charge. So, I mean, we all have a touch of that, I think. Except Jagat Indi is very humble. So, but that mode of passion. So now Daksha, and here's the point. Let's get back to this verse where it starts out, Jaitan Martya Mutisha. Martya means the, that which is mortal. And here it's taken to be the body, that which is mortal, Martya. So bodies are different. Daksha looked at Lord Shiva's body and could not see his divine nature and thought, well, technically, I'm this really high-class cosmic guy. And Lord Shiva is, he thought Lord Shiva was less than him, very much less than him. And so that's the pritta drishti, that's seeing the separateness. He couldn't see the oneness of himself with Lord Shiva and his followers or even Lord, Lord Shiva's exalted position. So therefore his drishti, his drishti, his vision was pritta. It was seeing things separately. And uh, 
specifically what he couldn't see about Lord Shiva is that he is Bhagavan. Here's, here's the locative form of the noun, uh, Bhagavati, uh, that he's a lord. And he couldn't see that he's aprati druhi. Druh, this verb in Sanskrit, D-R-U-H, uh, means to injure or to envy or just to be against someone. Prati, prati also means against, like counter. So, so prati druhi means like to be envious against someone. Or also it can mean like counter, like a counter punch or a counter measure. So if, if you want to use, like, just like the English prefix counter, like something responding to something else, in Sanskrit that's prati. And so here it said druhyadi, that Daksha was envying or being aggressive towards someone who was not envying him in return. That's the prati. To someone who was an exalted personality, Bhagavati, and who was not reciprocating his own contempt. So that's what's literally being said here. Jaitan Marthi Mudisha Bhagavatya Pratidruhi Druya Tyagya. Because Daksha at that point was in ignorance. Agya, not knowing. Uh, of course, from the Sanskrit Agya, you have the Greek agnostic. That's what agnostic means, not knowing. Pratagrustis tatvato And therefore, actually here, it's not, the verse does not specifically name uh, Daksha, it just says one who, with the obvious idea that it replies to this person. But the verse is just the general statement, one who. And so one who behaves in this way, who envies someone that does not envy you in return, you envy someone that does not envy you in return, you are aggressive or injure someone that does not injure you and is not injuring you. That's the idea. Especially when, it, when you do this to an exalted person, a highly respectable person, then the inevitable result, bhavet, means this must happen. What must happen is that one becomes tattvato vimuko. So I'll explain what those words mean. You want the uh, luxurious or the uh, complete version of this? So tattva, tattva in Sanskrit means truth. It's often translated truth. Pure Prabhupada translates it uh, transcendental knowledge. Tat, tat in Sanskrit is a demonstrative pronoun. That means it points something out. And it just means that in English. So if you take the word tat, like om tat sat, if you just add the H, it's English. Tat, that. So in philosophical Sanskrit, which tends to be very concise, um, tat, that, comes to stand for a real thing because you can only point out a real thing. So that is, means a real thing, that. And it's used as an um tat sat, a real thing. So um, a demonstrative pronoun, something you can demonstrate. So tatwam means literally something like thatness. In other words, having the state of, or existing as that, existing as a real thing. That's what tatwa means, existing as a real thing. And it comes to be used in Sanskrit because there are different words for truth. 
And so the word tatwa comes to be used as a categorical truth. In other words, a category of real things, such as jiva tatwa. So when we say jiva tatwa, it means the jiva as a category of real things, or Vishnu tatwa, or Prakriti tatwa, or for example, Vedanti tatwa vidas, tatvam yad jnana madvayam brahmet. So Brahman, Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagavan are all, those who know tatwa, those who know fundamental categories know that there are these fundamental categories of God. Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagavan. So, um, actually, in Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra, when we say that he's nirvishesha shunyavadi paschatyadeshatarine, the word nirvishesha is related to the word tattva. Because the word vishesha in Sanskrit means a distinction, a distinction, something that makes something else special. And therefore, from this uh, a similar word, visheshana, same word means in Sanskrit, adjective. Because that's what an adjective is. An adjective distinguishes or tells what's special about some object. Like if you say the book, you say the big book, the little book, the red book, the blue book. So an adjective is something which distinguishes or explains what is special about a particular object. That's what an adjective does. The handsome moose, for example. So, um, so therefore, to be near vishesha, near means without, as in nirvana. So, to be near vishesha simply means without proper distinctions. And so, what are so if someone is near vishesha, vad, vadi, an impersonalist? What are the proper distinctions that person does not make? The difference between God, the soul. So if you if you cannot, if you don't see the di the distinction between God and the soul, then that's nirvishesha. Yeah, Chudhyavadi, of course, preaching voidism. So, so um, and but the distinctions, the visheshas that you're supposed to make are the tattvas. They're the tattvas, jiva tattva, Ishvara tattva, or Vishnu tattva. So Prabhupada saving the Western countries, and I hope we can uh, do that for him, since he said he was going to do that. Um, impersonalism specifically means you don't understand tattvas. You don't understand fundamental categories of truth. So here in this verse in the Bhagavatam, it is said that if you are aggressive or injure someone that's not injuring you, especially someone who's a great personality, then the inevitable result is that you become vimukha, tatvata. Tatvata means from tatva. And vimukha is interesting. Mukha means face. Face. And it's used exactly as in English, like not only your physical face, like chaturmukha, you know, four-faced Brahma, but Mukha also means face in the sense of to face someone. To face someone. What's that? Yeah, to face someone. Like, for example, what is that verse? That, uh, so, Vimukha. V, we still have an Italian. If anyone here know Italian? 
That's too bad, because I would have given you a prize if you knew Italian. <laughs> Sorry, none of you won that prize, but V, like in Italian they say via, via, which means away. Like if you want to tell someone Italian, like get out of here, they say via, via, via. Like, so that via in Italian, also in English, away, like away, that V is just Sanskrit V. So V means separating, away. So vimuka literally means facing away from something. Facing away from something. In other words, missing it, not seeing it. Because you face away. Was that first Anyway, that's something else. So um so tatvato vimuka literally means to face away from, in other words, not to see, to lose sight of uh, the fundamental categories of truth. And in this case, one of the tattvas is, of course, Shiva tattva, to understand that Shiva is a great personality and also to understand that all living beings are fundamentally one, even as they are different, you know, Veda, Veda. This is the Abheda part. So, so basically, the, the Veda Abheda, which means difference and non-difference, is true not only between ourselves and God, it's also true between jivas. So all of us are one and we're different. And so uh, drishti means you see the Veda, but you don't see the Abheda. You don't see the non-difference. That was the problem. So that's, anyway, I think I can honestly say that I explained the verse. I didn't just uh, go over the, over the moon here. So how does, this re, how does this apply to us? Now I come to the insufferable sermon part of it after explaining everything. Um, in Krishna consciousness, I mean, after all, Lord Chaitanya says in the, in the I'm sorry, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmane Gavihastini Suni Chaiva Shapakecha Pandita Sama Darshana. Sama, same word we have in English, same. The same, Sama. And uh, actually, another little linguistic item for you. Uh, just as we know, the word Hindu comes from Sindhu because in Persia they pronounce the S like an H, Sindhu, and then Hindu. So, Samo. In Sanskrit, if you pronounce the S like an H, which they did, it becomes homo. That's where you get the word homo, as in homogeneous, for example. It's just Sanskrit samo. But anyway, so um, what does Krishna say in the Gita? Vidya vinaya sampane. Sampane means endowed with. Brahmane, a Brahman who's endowed with knowledge and humility, because there are Brahmins who are not learned and not humble and they're not a lot of fun to be around. So the idea here is that Krishna is not just talking about a caste brahmana, because if, if a brahmana is wise, vidya, vinaya, vinaya means humility, one of my, personally one of my strongest qualities. So, but obviously, obviously if a brahman is not wise, and not humble, it's kind of like, and what was your job here? So, so therefore Krishna's talking about a real Brahman, a really highly qualified Brahman, wise, learned, 
humble. So vidya vinaya sampane brahmane gavi, a cow, hastini, an elephant, shuni, a dog, shapakecha, and literally a dog cooker. Which is quite gross. Sorry I have to bring this up just right before breakfast, but <laughs> so now what, what is Krishna what is Krishna doing in this verse? First of all, he frames this list. It's not merely a list, the list has a structure. Because Krishna starts the first item on the list is the the, the very qualified Brahman, which means the highest human being. The highest human being is a very qualified Brahman. Vidya Binaya Sampane Brahmane. And the lowest human being is, of course, the dog cooker. Because if you cook dogs, God knows what else you'll do. So culturally, so this frames it. So Krishna is saying from the highest human being to the lowest. And then in between, we get different classes of animals. We get the elephant, the cow, the dog. And so what Krishna is saying is that... Uh, Everyone, he's really saying everyone, all creatures. It's like he's framing this and saying that just everything in between. So Krishna says, Pandita, those who are truly wise, Samadarsana, they have equal vision. Samadarsana, darsana is the same as drishti, the same word. So this is exactly the opposite as pritha drishti in the verse, Samadarsana. It's exactly the, the opposite, or tulia drishti. So in ISKCON, in the Hare Krishna movement, how do we see things? It's interesting because in Bhagavad Gita, you have hierarchy, but you also have equality. Krishna introduces Chaturvarnyam, the Varnashram system, which is a hierarchy, but then again, he emphasizes that we're all equal. So the hierarchy refers to our bodies. Our bodies have a certain hierarchy based on, like, for example, parents and children, or the Brahmins and so on, or guru and disciple. But spiritually, we're all equal. Spiritually, we're all equal. So in a spiritual society, if the emphasis is on hierarchy, that means that society is mostly in the bodily concept of life. I'm not saying that we abolish the hierarchies. I'm not saying that children shouldn't you know, obey their parents or that disciples shouldn't follow the guru. I'm not saying that we should take abolish the hierarchy. But someone who's in a higher position, in a hierarchy, is qualified to be in that higher position only if that person sees the equality. In other words, a guru who takes the position of a superior is truly qualified to be in that higher position only if the guru sees that ultimately we're all equal. A guru who thinks, I'm really better than my disciple, uh, needs help. Or sannyasi. As we know, sannyasis are, without question, the most humble members of our society. There's absolutely no, no question about that. But let's say, for example, if I'm a, well, I am a sannyasi. Despite some uh, criticism. So, as a sannyasi, I'm qualified to take the free lunch or the honor of being a sannyasi, really only if I understand that I'm not actually better than other people. 
because we're all spirit soul, we're all equal. And that fact is the most important fact. And so ironically, it's precisely the people who best understand that I'm not better than you that are qualified to take a higher position in a hierarchy. And people who exploit an external position, such as sannyasi or brahmana, people who exploit that position to really think they're better than other people are actually unqualified. So what happens in a sp spiritual society, which hopefully doesn't just degenerate into merely a religious society, what happens in a spiritual society is the extent to which the people on top, the people in the higher position, really understand, deeply understand that they're not better than anyone else, that we're all equal. To that extent, it will actually be a spiritual society. And the extent to which people in high positions really, you know, they may talk the talk, but, but in terms of what they really feel inside, they actually feel superior. The extent to which people in higher positions actually think they're better than other people, to that extent, it's not a spiritual society. It's more of a mundane religious society. And don't just take my word for it. Uh, I'll quote the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam says, and this is a very heavy verse, Archayam eva haraye pujang jaksha daye hate natad bhakteshu chanyeshu savakta prakrita smrita. I rest my case. That a person who endeavors to worship the Lord, but archayam eva, only in the deity form, you know, Sunday warrior. You just come on, you know, you come, you see the deities, and that's God. And, but that person does not worship the deity, same deity, does not worship the deity in the hearts of the devotees, and does not worship the deity in all living beings. In other words, you don't see that every person or every body is a mandir, is a temple. So every time you meet another person, you are actually in the temple. And so if someone doesn't see that, or doesn't act that way, but only respects the deity in the temple, the Bhagavatam says, Sabhakta, that devotee, Sabhakta, Prakritasmrita, is understood to be on the material platform. In other words, it's not just because I joined the Hare Krishna movement that I'm on the spiritual platform. Or not even if I wear certain kinds of dress. That doesn't mean I'm on the spiritual platform. Because the Bhagavatam says you can actually worship the deity with, with faith. You act, someone can actually worship the deity faithfully. And yet, if they do not see and respect the deity in all other people, then that's the material platform. So, 
now that it's ISKCON 50 and we are, there are endless self-congratulatory uh, programs going on, uh, I don't know, it might not be appropriate to have even a tiny bit of self-analysis or introspection, maybe that's inappropriate. Uh, but if somehow or other we do think that uh, at this 50 year anniversary, it might be nice to have just a little bit of self investigation, then um, we should ask ourselves that question. <clears throat> if you look at the way ISKCON functions, the way it operates, the way the leaders are, does it feel like we are led by people who deeply understand that we are all equal, who offer genuine respect and honor to everyone, who do not feel they are in a higher, I mean, they may actually be in a higher position administratively or even as a guru, that's fine. I'm not trying to destroy hierarchies, but do the people in higher positions understand more than the people in the lower positions that we're all equal? And do they offer that genuine respect? For example, equality, one of the, one of the most important ways that we express equality in civilized societies is by giving everyone justice. Throughout history, whether it's Bhagavad Gita, by, by the way, the Sanskrit word for justice is Dharma. And Krishna says that he comes to this world when justice is declining. And he reestablishes it. And Krishna also makes clear that justice is based on equality. It's all in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, read it and weep. So, so do we live in a society in which those in higher positions have a deep, profound, heartfelt commitment to justice for everyone? I'll leave it to everyone to, you know, come up with your own answer. But I suggest that now in the 50 year anniversary of ISKCON, it might actually be interesting to think about things like this maybe sort of in the intermissions between our self-glorification. So, uh, as we know, Daksha is actually a son of Brahma, isn't he? So he like really came over on the Mayflower. I mean, in the sense that, uh, you know, he's one of the, he's one of the original living beings of the universe. He's a very exalted personality. And yet his specific, mistake here, he literally lost his head in this incident, and his specific mistake here is forgetting the honor and respect that is due to other living beings, no matter what kind of body they have. And even if they are not in a high administrative position. So that's the kind of spiritual society, frankly, which will attract the world, especially I might say the Western world where people are so concerned with justice and equality. And if we start to, so anyway, thank you very much for your attention. Any questions on these points? For those of you who feared that you might take breakfast at lunchtime today, we're actually gonna wind up. Yes. Um, I like your about the 50th stage of our movement, being interested in the 
So how do we, was there an example in the secular society of how to structure such a leadership as certain standards to follow that reflect what you were just talking about? Yes. And if it doesn't, then how do we deal with that? In other words, if we, if leaders have their own mind, this is the way it should be because I'm the leader. Right, right. Oh, like, like, like an herbal tea party. We can't do caffeine tea parties. Yeah. I think the important thing, if, if you study the world, what you find is the higher the level of general education in a society, the more justice there is. Because we are conditioned souls. Welcome to the Mahatattva. We are conditioned souls. And if I know that I'm dealing with a person that doesn't, that kind of doesn't know their rights or doesn't think they have any rights, it is very seductive. I will be seduced into abusing that person because power corrupts. And knowledge is, for example, the Chanakya Pandit or Hito Padesh, but there's that Sanskrit proverb that Buddhir Jasya Balantasya, one who has intelligence has power. And so you find around the world, like for example, take Scandinavia, where you know everybody has education and they have the most honest governments in the world, the least corruption. And then there's a direct correlation between, let's say, countries where they have very bad public education and a lot of corruption. And the better the general education, the less the corruption. That's a direct correspondence. And so if devotees are not aware that their leaders mm -hmm must give them justice, must treat them fairly, must treat them respectfully. If they're not aware of that, then they may just think that it's Krishna conscious uh, to be mistreated or it's Krishna conscious to be denied justice that somehow, or to be treated unfairly, that this is somehow an act of devotion. And in a sense it is, you know, it's, I mean, humility is always a good thing. However, uh, we have to say, is it good for Prabhupada's movement? Actually, I'm just going to put this out. So, um, and I think at this point, the world is not going to be attracted with society that does not effectively and systematically guarantee justice to its members guarantee that all the members of this spiritual society will be treated fairly. And if you're not treated fairly, you have recourse. There are things you can do to secure justice. You will not be mistreated. Frankly, I think that's a lot more attractive than just elaborate rituals and, 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 and you know, big buildings. I, I think that people, that's what people are looking for. People are looking for a movement where the relationships seem spiritual. They actually look spiritual. They are spiritual. So I think the most important thing here is, I just wrote a paper, by the way. Yeah. And um, I point out that Prabhupada is very concerned about these things. If I can just go very quickly into the sociology of religion. This is, this is mainstream, standard sociology of religion. This is not, as I say, coming from a wacko website. Um, in, in the initial stage of religious movement, whether it's ISKCON or, or, or any other religious movement, you have a charismatic leader like Prabhupada. Charisma in Greek means 
Shakti Avesh, it means a divine empowerment, a divine gift. So Prabhupada is a charismatic leader in the social science sense because he has, or, or his followers understand that he has or accept that he has this divine empowerment. And so when Prabhupada was personally here, all authority was in Prabhupada. We understood Shastra through Prabhupada. He, he said, you know, go, stay, yes, no, that was it. It's not that you told Prabhupada, I have my rights, Prabhupada. You can't do that. And so when the charismatic leader passes away, you enter into another historical stage. And what history shows is that the ability of a new spiritual religious movement to survive, to flourish as a spiritual movement depends on their ability to take that charismatic authority that, for example, in our case, Prabhupada had and channel it and transform it into a rational, sustainable institutional structure where there's justice. So that the leaders of the movement, gurus, GBC, whoever they may be, they're not above the law, they follow the law. And so to think that as a leader, as a big leader, I don't have to follow the rules, uh, that is imitating Prabhupada. That's not following Prabhupada, that's imitating Prabhupada. That's imitating Prabhupada. In fact, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 3, even if you are self-realized, follow the rules. He says it's right there in the Gita. Because if you don't follow the rules, you're going to mislead everybody else. And it's not that just by becoming a top manager that you are self-realized. It's not that the fact that someone has a high managerial position automatically means that person is self-realized. Every religion in history shows that some people achieve high managerial positions who are not so spiritually advanced or the highest managerial positions. So the mere fact that someone is a member of a governing body, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not saying don't follow the law. Everyone just, you know, go out in the street, you know, and burn down, I don't know, burn Sankirtan vans or something. It's not, we're not talking about anarchy here. We're talking about, you know, devotees that follow the law. But the point is, everyone has to follow the law, and the law has to be fair. And it's not that because someone has the highest managerial position, that person is automatically spiritually advanced. They're not the same thing. In every religion in the world, some people who are, who follow the basic principles of their religion and are good managers become top leaders in that church or, or that you know, religious movement. So therefore, seeing that the top managers are necessarily the most advanced or most Krishna conscious is it's just not true. They may be. Some of our top managers may be. And in fact, some of them are. Some of them are very advanced and some of them may not be. And that's why you have to have laws. You can't just say that whoever the top managers are, they are so spiritually advanced that we don't, they don't need to follow the rules. That doesn't work. And it's not working. So what we need in ISKCON is uh, the rule of law, not the rule of whim, the whims of individuals, but the rule of law. So when you join ISKCON, you know you have certain duties, you have certain rights, these are the rules of the game. They don't, as I say, move the goal line in the middle of the game. 
And, and that's the kind of society I think that civilized, educated human beings want to belong to. Yes? Just to follow up, so <clears throat> it appears that throughout the world this problem exists because you say the sociologists analyze it. So is the world just doomed to this kind of chaotic religious? No! Oh, oh, oh. Is, yeah. is there an opportunity for religious groups like Islam? Yes. Yes. The more devotees in general are educated, it's simply a fact of life. You know, if you like it, you don't like it, it's just the way the world is. That in a society, the more people in general are educated and know things, the more justice there is, the, 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 the more honest the government is, and the more the people in general are ignorant, the worse the government tends to be. It's just the way it is. And therefore, I have been taking steps in my service to Prabhupada to try to educate devotees about certain facts, not to foment you know, revolution, sedition, anarchy, chaos, you know, just power to the people. But the idea is we want a fair, rational, civilized society where everyone follows the rules and the rules are fair. Yeah, so therefore education. That's why I'm trying to, as far as I understand these things, I'm trying to teach the devotees. Yes, Vedasar Prabhuji. Just a little bit more clarification on this one, Maharaj. When we talk about justice, I mean, the way you explained it, and the way our philosophy teaches us to imbibe its teaching, and the way it's presented to the members in our society is that this world is an unfair world. And so... That's not what Krishna teaches. So that's why we need to surrender to Krishna. No, no. Yeah, that, that's a very convenient teaching for someone who's on top. The fact is, the fact is, Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita, Jijatha mam prapadyante. As people approach me or deal with me, I precisely reciprocate. That's the essence of justice. That's the essence of justice. It's just like, I mean, the most famous symbol of justice, and Krishna says he comes to this world to restore justice to this world. The most famous symbol of justice in the world is the goddess of justice blindfolded and holding the scales. And it's very interesting because you see this in front of courthouses. Normally, in Europe, they have this also? Yeah, so normally, because, because it's just things have to balance. The punishment has to fit the crime. The reward has to fit the act. And interestingly, justice generally carries a sword, but the sword is carried below the scales because first you have to fairly measure everything, and then you apply justice. So... So Krishna says he comes to this world to restore justice. And so if we're representing Krishna, treating people fairly, treating people equally. Krishna says you cannot achieve the highest devotion unless you treat everyone fairly. So this preaching that never mind the world, the world's hopelessly corrupt, maybe it is, but does that mean Iskand should be corrupt? So... Humility, yes, but for example, myself, I, um, 
I'm not doing what I'm doing because I want something. I've already had all the positions in ISKCON and this and that. I can honestly say at this point, just give me some nice organic fruit and a quiet place and I want to write some books. So I don't personally want any position in ISKCON. I'm not looking for followers unless they're very rich. <laughs> but um, come on, Beta. <laughs> so, but the point is, I, it hurt, I don't want to see the Lord's servants mistreated. I don't want to see sincere souls denied justice in, you know, in the name of Trinata P. Sunni Chain. I don't want to see people, I'm not saying this is happening, maybe it is, you know, I'm just stating a general principle that ISKCON cannot be a society in which leaders manipulate philosophy like Trinata P, be very humble, in order to treat people unfairly, mistreat them, deny them justice in the name of everyone else should be humble. Uh, ISKCON cannot be that kind of society. I need to elaborate my question. Go ahead, Veda. So, I'm trying to understand, because we're speaking about justice more on a, on a moral and ethical platform. And then there is the spiritual aspect of it, for example, that, you know, things happen in this world, we are trained to accept things as though that we have done something in some lifetime to deserve what we get in this lifetime, and say, Krishna, thank you so much for not making it worse that you have given me such a life punishment. Okay, the problem, okay, that applies that you just sort of like that Vedic, that Vaishnav stoicism, just like whatever happens, that's just, that applies after, not before, we make our best effort on behalf of other people. If something happens to me, of course it's Krishna's mercy. But if, if everything that happens to everybody is just, you know, their karma, then why would there be government? Why would kings enforce or, or, or leaders enforce justice? Why would a king or, 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 any, other, or, 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 a, or a, any political leader ever punish criminals, ever reward you know, people that deserve to be rewarded? There would be no justice. It's just complete anarchy. Don't do anything. Don't do anything. Let all hell break loose. And whatever happens, you know, it's karma. It's just what you're basically advocating is anarchy. In my life, and that's not Vedic culture. Krishna himself comes to this world mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, as far as karma, you find out what someone's karma is after, not before you have guaranteed justice. Not before you've done that. You do everything humanly possible to give justice to people, to ensure fairness, and after you've done that, despite all your efforts, whatever happens, then you can get philosophical about it. Okay, I'll, I want to try to continue this, this part. So at what point, because, for example, if I dwell on the principle of justice, based on moral and ethical code, I mean, I could sometimes get lost in it. No, you dwell, you, no, you dwell on something when it is deficient. For example, if you, let, let's say, if I have a vitamin C deficiency, then I start to crave orange juice. So you dwell on something because it's missing and it's important. And once you restore the proper balance, 
then it just, you don't have to obsess about it. It just becomes one of the normal pillars of civilization. It's just like if you have children, if one of your children, let's say, God forbid, is sick, then that's the child you think about. Normally, parents should think about all their children equally. But if one child is sick or something is missing in life, you have to think about it. Oh, wait, you wanted to? Hey, how are you doing? Hare Krishna. Thank you so much. Um, I actually, that, that is our this question and your response was, so it, is it, it, if we have a problem and it should be handled, right? I mean, if we keep going back to it, going back to it, and we try, you know, it's not being handled, so I'm, I'm praying, please let me let this go, let this go, but I can't, and it's really, in my eyes, unfair, and I'm, but I still want to let it go because I know yes. that I can't. Like, it just keeps me Okay, let's going. talk about that. Hey, Veda, come back, you've got to hear this. Okay, here's the point. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, one who eats too little or eats too much can't practice spiritual life. One who sleeps too little or too much. And then he says, this applies to everything. Now, emotionally, just as, you know, like from what Veda said, and I know he's just playing the uh, Agyani's advocate, that you could say, well, I'm not my body. And therefore, I'm just not going to eat. I'm just not going to eat. I'm not going to sleep because I'm not my body. No. You have, because we do have a human reality. There's a human dimension. And you cannot advance spiritually if you just pretend you don't have a human reality. In fact, Krishna says that your duty in life, in the Varna system, comes from your human nature. That means your whole career. Your whole career in life, what you spend most of your time doing, comes from your human nature, not the fact that you're a pure soul. But because you are a pure soul, you offer it to Krishna. And that's how you transcend your human nature. But your whole career in life is based on your human nature, not the fact that you're a pure soul. And because you do have this body, you have to eat moderately, sleep, do everything. Krishna says, yukta, yukta hara biharasa. You should have moderate recreation. Some people think it's maya to relax or laugh or just, you know, take some time off. But Krishna says, you have to do that to practice spiritual life. So, getting back to your question now. We have a human need for justice. And it's just like Prabhupada said, Raghunath Das Goswami was eating so little, but if you try to imitate Raghunath Das, you will fall down. In the same way, if you try to imitate the greatest Paramahamsas and pretend that you don't have a human need for justice, it doesn't work. And so just as we cannot imitate the Goswamis and eat maybe two or three you know, old grains of rice a day, and just as you can't sleep, you know, 45 minutes a day, emotionally, you can't pretend that you don't have a material body, that you, that you don't have a human side, that you're liberated, absolutely. You can't pretend that 
when you're still in a human condition. And therefore, emotionally also, things have to be balanced. That's why people get married. People get married because it's an emotional, physical balance in which you practice spiritual life, but you have to acknowledge and satisfy your human nature. Emotional needs are no different than physical needs. You must satisfy them in moderation. So in moderation, you must satisfy your emotional need for justice. And it's frankly ludicrous. It's just absurd to claim that the Hare Krishna movement should guide the world, lead the world, doctor heal thyself. You know, it, what I meant to say is, it's not absurd that ISKCON guide the world. That's not my point. It would be absurd for us to tell the world, let us guide you, if we cannot show the world a truly spiritual society where a leader is a leader because that person best understands that I'm not better than anyone else and that I'm actually a servant of everyone else. And therefore, if I really under, how can I actually understand that I'm a servant of you or someone else and deny you justice? How can I understand that you are spirit soul and treat you unfairly? There's a word for that in English, hypocrisy. And probably more than any other institution in human history, religious institutions are famous for their hypocrisy. I don't know of any other human institution, you know, in the last so many thousands of years, more famous for hypocrisy than religious institutions. And I'm not talking here about ISKCON. I'm talking about the general category of religious institutions. Perhaps the single most hypocritical institution in human history, as we see now in the news. People claiming to be acting for God and committing the most evil actions. So if a leader, see, I put the, why not put the burden on the other side? Rather than tell, ask some simple devotee, some, you know, Joe Prabhu or something, you know, Joe the Prabhu, Joe the plumber, Joe the Prabhu, you know, you know, why, why say to some simple devotee trying to serve Krishna that why are you asking for justice? I think, I think the question really has to go somewhere else. I think we need to ask leaders, why aren't you giving justice? Why aren't you treating people fairly if, if, hypothetically, there's a case where a leader is not treating people fairly? I'm not, you know, naming names. I'm not trying to say this or that leader. I'm just saying, as a principle, as a general principle, that's the real question to ask. Because, to quote no less an authority than Spider-Man's uncle, with great power comes great responsibility. It's the people who have power. It's the people who have the big position. They're the ones who in the first place have to justify what they're doing. So they have to, you know, and that includes myself. You know, I, I, I'm a sannyasi guru, GBC emeritus. And so uh, it's my responsibility not to just 
harass some young devotee or some, not just young, but some, you know, soldier in ISKCON and harass them about why do you want justice? Why do you want this or that? Why don't I ask myself, if I'm taking this big position, if I'm taking all this prestige, am I treating people fairly? Am I treating people respectfully? I think that, you know, the higher your position in ISKCON, the more responsibility you have to ask yourself this question. Yes? How do we ensure that there's justice in uh, I'd say do the math. It's, <laughs> for example, like, like let, okay, let, let's say something happens somewhere uh, in some community or whatever. And let's say it appears to you that someone was treated unfairly. Then you can investigate. You can encourage others. Conform, you know, this, and that's starting to happen now, actually. I don't want to just give myself the credit for the paper I wrote, but it's starting to happen now. So, um, because as I said, if you look at societies all around the world, in societies where you don't, where, where the, the people in general are not paying attention to what the leaders are doing and don't point out when they do the wrong thing, the, you always get widespread corruption and abuse. It's the only possible result, is corruption and abuse. Unless people pay attention and people speak out. According to Vaishnav etiquette, according to Vaishnav etiquette, you know, even if we think we've seen something unfair, it doesn't justify us to offend others. And we ourselves cannot be instruments of injustice. For example, if I see something that I think is unfair, I can't just, you know, shout from the rooftops that, you know, this person is unjust unless that, unless that person, who I think has acted unjustly, has received fair process. <clears throat> Frankly, the, the very fair process that so many leaders often deny others. So even if we see a leader denying other people fair process, which means things like, the accused has a right to defend themselves. This is, by the way, ISKCON law. It's not always applied, but it's ISKCON law. The accused has a right to defend themselves, that, uh, that the people making the accusation or judging the case must look at all the evidence, must be diligent to make sure they have all the evidence, and a person cannot be uh, convicted or... or, or Punished for something that was not clearly spelled out earlier. You can't make up the rule as you go along. In other words, the rule of law, not the rule of personal preferences. And so what I, I think ISKCON more and more in the present situation, frankly, devotees, good devotees, intelligent devotees, whenever they see what appears to them to be injustice, abuse, mistreatment, unfairness, they have to, with others, or alone, investigate and be fair. We don't want vigilante mobs. We don't want vigilante mobs because we ourselves have to exemplify justice and, and, and fairness. And it's just, it's, it's a simple fact. Unless that's done, it's starting to happen. Yes? Isn't there like a, like a bureau of the, of the government called, like the Federal Bureau of Investigation? In this one? No, like you're saying the U.S. government. So, I mean, that's the, the arm of the government. Well, that's not the justice system. That's just a, yeah, an investigative. Yeah. I mean, like, if, if we leave it up to, like, just regular devotees to do all the investigation, that could be a 
Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. It would be really nice. But here's the history. ISKCON formed a justice ministry decades ago. And the leaders of the movement allowed it to basically collapse into total dysfunction. It was just a name. I mean, there was no justice ministry. There was no justice. And that's been for decades. And so in response to this obvious problem, uh, a few years ago, they formed something called the ISCON Dispute Resolution Office, IDRO, IDRO, which in Spanish means hydro, not to be confused with a hydroelectric thing, but so ISCON Dispute Resolution Office. Unfortunately, and this is almost unbelievable, it, it's like you go to this ISCON entity if you feel you were treated unfairly or unjustly, but they put in a rule that if an ISCON manager, and almost in every case of alleged injustice, you know, whether it's real or not, alleged injustice, in almost every case, the person who's thought to have acted unjustly is a manager because no one else has the power to act unjustly. And yet they put this rule in that if an ISCON manager simply says that, okay, I'm accused of, of acting unjustly, but my action was managerial. That's all he has to say, he or she, and, and that's over. No further investigation. The manager simply has to say that was a managerial decision and there can be no further investigation according to ISCON law. I mean, obviously that's absurd. So if you look at societies around the world, what we find is there's something called NGO, non-governmental organizations. Now, one of the symptoms, one of the characteristics of first world countries, first world countries where relatively or comparatively there's more justice, there's more transparency, is strong NGOs. And one of the main characteristics of third world countries where there's a lot of corruption and almost no transparency is weak NGOs, weak NGOs. So now in ISCON, I mean, will the, the, you know, the managers, probably called the ultimate managers of the movement, will they establish effective bodies and uh, you know, yeah, entities to ensure justice to the devotees? I hope they do, but there has to be justice. So therefore, and, and the idea, you know, they use the term watchdog. What does association mean? Let, let's get back to the basics. What does it mean? We all know that in order to practice spiritual life, we need association. What does it mean? What constitutes association? Because let's say you can be in a crowded bus. You're not associated with those people because you don't know them, they don't know you, they're not really watching you. I mean, they may watch you, for example, if you do something suspicious, like pull something out of your shoe and start mixing chemicals. But So association only exists when you are with other people that know what you're doing and are evaluating what you're doing. And you know they know, and you care what they think. If those conditions aren't met, there's no association. So for example, let's say I'm a big leader 
And I'm talking about myself, I'm a big leader and I become very proud, very proud and arrogant. And therefore, I can be around a hundred other devotees, but because I think none of them have a right to judge me, none of them have a right to criticize me, I'm not associating with them. They are not providing me association because I don't care what they think. But if I'm around a group of devotees um, and I care about what they think, either because they have the power to uh, cause me trouble in some way or just because I am not shameless and you know I have some sense of shame and I care what they think, then there's association. Now, if we have a group of leaders who basically think they're so high and mighty, if, this is hypothetical, who think they're so high and mighty that they don't care what other people think, then they're not having any association with anyone. There's no association there. And therefore, inevitably, their spiritual life will be, uh, have problems. And as we know, you know, when people have power, it tends to, they can get a little loopy. Whether it's sannyasi, guru, GVC, head bottle washer, you know, whatever it is. Therefore, when you have strong NGOs, I'm not saying this is the only way, I'm just analyzing the way the world works outside our little bliss bubble. <laughs> when you have strong NGOs, the leaders know I'm being watched. They know two things. Number one, I'm under the law, and if it's pointed out that I didn't follow the law, I'm going to have problems. And number two, Intelligent people are watching me. In general, when human beings know that intelligent people are watching me, and if I do the wrong thing, I'll be punished for it, they do the right thing. And that's what you find in governments around the world. If someone, a human being thinks that no one's watching me, they may do the wrong thing. If they think people are watching me, but they can't, they have no power to do anything. I can do whatever I want. They may do the wrong thing. So both these things have to be the case. And the extent to which the leaders of this movement still have a human nature, the extent to which the leaders of this movement are not in the highest, most exalted sense, Paramahamsas, the extent to which, like the rest of us, they're still somewhat conditioned. To that extent, they will, the best guarantee they will do the right thing is if they know intelligent people are watching them and they know that if they don't do the right thing, there will be consequences. Now, how you bring about those two conditions, is it an NGO? Is it, let's say a GBC appointed body? I don't care as long as it works, but it has to work. And we cannot attract and retain. We cannot attract and retain intelligent devotees. Prabhupada made it very clear this movement will only succeed if we do attract and retain intelligent devotees. And we can only attract and retain intelligent devotees if they feel that in ISKCON they will be treated fairly. And they have a right to be treated fairly. And if they are treated unfairly, they can do something about it. Real world. 
You know, just like in the early days of ISKCON, I'm just about to finish Veda. It's a codicy, so, so I'm actually making sure that you all fast. <laughs> in the early days of the movement, we had a foolish idea that we were above the laws of nature. Rupa Goswami says at the beginning of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that if you surrender to Krishna, you are free of your karma. Free of your karma does not mean above the laws of nature. You can be free of your karma, but if you fall off a high place, you're going to fall exactly at the same speed as a karma that falls from that high place, according to the laws of physics. So to think that ISKCON is beyond the laws of nature, you can eat you know, very unhealthy prasadam, and it won't matter because it's prasadam, no. I mean, we've had too many, you know, yeah, I mean, Prabhupada disciples are, are not famous as an extremely healthy group of people. So, or thinking, for example, people used to think that, oh, you know, a mother or father would think, I don't have to give a lot of attention to my child because I'm selling Prabhupada's books. And therefore, Krishna will protect them. The result? Catastrophic. So to think that because we're a spiritual society, we don't need justice is equally foolish. You know, we have to be good human, not only good devotees, we have to be good human beings. If people see, oh, we're good devotees, but not good human beings, there's a word for that, hypocrisy. Uh, yes, you wanted to. Um, Maharaj, also, in, within ISKCON, and sometimes I, I even wonder if this is not just envy of my own coming out, but there seems to be always a huge differentiation between Prabhupada disciples and everyone else. But, and so, now I'm not talking about being kicked mm -hmm. or abused, yeah. but like when for Prabhupada worship, um, certain formalities that it's only Prabhupada's direct disciples who will bathe Shil Prabhupada and no one else goes up and partakes in that. And sometimes and really and it may be my envy that well, I, yeah. a lot of times we I feel like but I, I love Shula Prabhupada too. Okay, two things I'll say real quick because we don't have much time. Number one, um, there, there, there should be a certain etiquette. For example, in 1972 in New Vrindavan, when that famous Prabhupada visit, we had Janmashtami Vyas Puja with Prabhupada, and at Prabhupada's own Vyas Puja ceremony, which was all fresco, you know, outdoor pavilion, um, Prabhupada asked the sannyasis to come up and speak. So there was a certain etiquette, there was a protocol. At the same time, so, so, so in terms of ceremonial events and everything, I mean, there, there is a certain etiquette which should be observed. At the same time, a Prabhupada disciple, being a senior person, should be the most enthusiastic, loving, well-wisher of everybody else. Again, it's, I mean, as a, as a Prabhupada, I, I'm a Prabhupada disciple, I guess, and nothing makes me happier than to see the younger devotees doing nicely, serving Prabhupada. That's my greatest happiness because it's... And another thing is that Prabhupada, Prabhupada is a Diksha guru. You know, he's my Diksha guru, he's not your Diksha guru. However, that's not Prabhupada's main position. Prabhupada made it very clear 
that his main position was Foundracharya. That's what he put on his book covers. Prabhupada didn't put on the book covers, you know, Diksha Guru Viskam. He put Foundracharya. When Prabhupada introduced himself to important people, he introduced himself as the founder of Charya Viscon, not as the Diksha Guru Viscon. And as the founder of Charya, Prabhupada has an equal relationship with all of us. So in terms of Diksha Guru, yes, I am and you're not. So there. But that's not Prabhupada's main position. His main position, and he's the great Acharya. He's the great Acharya for our age. And so as the founder of Charya, we all have an equal relationship with him. Otherwise, it would lead to an absurd conclusion. If every generation after Prabhupada became farther away from Prabhupada, that means that as time goes on, ISKCON would become more and more separated from Prabhupada, which is absurd. Actually, in some way, I always make these points. These are my standard points. But in some ways, I think younger generations like yourself and even younger generations have an advantage over my generation. It's like, for example, let's say you're in the Rocky Mountains. If, when you're actually in the Rocky Mountains, especially like say on the road to Denver from Utah, because, because the road is so high, it just it looks kind of like hills. They kind of look, I mean, it doesn't, it's not the knockout majestic sight maybe you were hoping for when you actually drive to the Rocky Mountains. But let's say in the Denver Siding Lakes, I'm familiar with it. If you, let's say you, you come through the Rocky Mountains and you go maybe 10 miles east or 15 miles east and you stop and look back, that's when it knocks you out. Because then you see the majesty of the Rocky Mountains. You can't see the forest for the trees. In some ways, I believe that people in your generation or younger generations in some ways can see Prabhupada more clearly than us because you have in, in some ways better perspective. In any case, if you do your duty, your dharma, for example, if, if you're the disciple of some this or that guru, there's an etiquette, you know, there's a standard Vaishnava etiquette. So whatever generation you're in, if you just do your duty and follow your etiquette, then you have the same access to Prabhupada as anyone else in the world. And in fact, if you take up Prabhupada's mission more seriously, then in fact you have a, you have a more intimate relation with Prabhupada. It's not just an external pecking order. Whoever actually understands, for example, why Prabhupada put the word Western in his Pranam Mantra. Some people have criticized me because I juxtaposed the sacred with the vulgar, you know, Krishna West. <laughs> like just to even linguistically bring those two things together is, is, is inappropriate. What about Prabhupada? What about his Pranam Mantra? Yeah. So <clears throat> if you really understand Prabhupada, not the ultra-conservative Prabhupada that some people have fabricated in their own image. But if you understand the real Prabhupada, who was conservative and also very liberal, very liberal, who gave us all kinds of flexibility within inflexible principles, such as our philosophy, our, philosophy, our practice, and our institutional framework. Prabhupada didn't want change, but within that fixed framework, he gave us all kinds of flexibility. 
He said we have to be Desha Kalavi Bhagavit, which Bhishma, the Mahajan, states in the first canto of the Bhagavatam, and which Narada Muni states in the fourth canto. Desha Kalavi Bhagavit. You have to understand differences of time and place. And Prabhupada said those who are puffed up with false, with concocted notions, think that, for example, whatever you do in India, you should do in America. He says that, puffed up with concocted notions. So if you really understand Prabhupada and you give your life to his mission, to defending his honor, you know, we chant every day. Everyone says every day, Nirvishesha Shunyavari Paschati Deshatarni. Did anyone notice? It didn't happen yet. I mean, does that matter to anyone? That it didn't happen yet? So it seems to me that if you really love Prabhupada, you want to defend his honor and make his words come true by especially those of us in the West spreading his Western mission. So if you dedicate your life to that, you are the most intimate associate of Prabhupada. That's what Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita. The one who stands up and preaches and doesn't just lead a selfish life that doesn't just get totally absorbed. I mean, obviously you don't go to the other extreme either. I'm not talking about ignoring, denying your human needs. No, be a mature human being, be an adult. Keep yourself physically healthy, emotionally healthy, intellectually and spiritually healthy. Be a healthy adult. But having done that, give your life to Prabhupada's mission. And if you do that, then you are the most dear associate of Krishna and of Prabhupada. And there's certain etiquette that we should preserve also. I, I'm, I'm also have totally, total respect for the etiquette. I think it totally should be observed. From what my experience has been is that it's, it, it's the senior devotee should always be first, get first. And, um, Especially it, the food. It almost, it almost seems like, and I don't, I know we don't have time to go into this, but yeah, so almost like there's some, every once in a while, there's like, Anyway, Caste system? The point is, if we who are Prabhupada disciples, if we really have great affection for younger devotees, if we, with all our heart, we want to help them, raise them, see them empowered, see them successful, I'm sure they, they will naturally have no problem with the fact that, you know, there's a certain etiquette. So therefore, I think the Prabhupada disciples, we should take the initiative to truly act as the affectionate well-wishers of the younger devotees. So we'll stop here. Thank you all very much for uh, listening to this diatribe. All glories to Prabhupada.